Welcome to Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Regis, your millennial indigenous advocate, coral lover, and host. We are recording in the second week of October 2020 and releasing this episode to you, my dear Deep Pacifica, on Indigenous Peoples Day. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day, you. Never forget, Black lives all around the world still matter, especially in West Papua, which still needs to be free. Breonna Taylor's killers all need to be arrested. The carceral system needs to be abolished and replaced, not just reformed. Queer people still need to be supported, and may all who have COVID-19 recover their bodies, minds, and spirits safely. I begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahan, Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the U.S. I am not from Guam, so I consider myself a settler. Although I am Chamorro, it is still with respect that I occupy this land and space and fight alongside the Chamorros of Guahan for self-determination. We begin every episode with a quote from an indigenous person that resonates. Today's quote, our story remains unwritten. It rests within the culture, which is inseparable from the land. To know this is to know our story. To write this is to write of the land and the people who are born from her. Honani K. Trask from a native daughter, Colonialism and Sovereignty in Hawaii. Dr. Haunani K. Trask is an award-winning Kanaka Maoli poet, an academic, a writer, an activist, and educator. She earned her PhD in political science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She was a well-loved professor of Hawaiian studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and has represented native Hawaiians in the UN and various other global forums. She authored two poetry books, Light in the Crevice Never Seen and Night is a Sharkskin Drum as well as two works of scholarship, Eros and Power, The Promise of Feminist Theory, and From a Native Daughter, Colonialism and Sovereignty in Hawaii. This quote is incredibly powerful in setting the stage for this decolonization series, part two, Land Back, because Dr. Trask, a fierce advocate for her people's rights, came from a lineage of activists, grew up in a family and time of resistance in Hawaii, So some powerful mana is in this quote. This quote draws attention to the interconnectedness of the land, the culture, and the people. To know this is to know our history. This quote resonates because this episode will be about our indigenous lands, our relationship as people of the Pacific to our lands, and our thoughts on land back. You will hear from a first-time contributor, Makere, a self-described urban Maori living in Aotearoa, another first-time contributor, Mr. Landback himself, Nainoa, coming through with some mythology, a third first-time contributor, Hilaan, coming in hot with the Chamorro-Ginin-Guahan perspective as well as history, followed by our favorite Tahitian poet with iridescent pearls, plumeria, and tiare dripping from her lips, Tea Tuahere, as well as our favorite angry Hawaiian and Kanaka Maoli, Kavena, ending with my favorite Gilita, Itzaluhu Situmas. Their piece makes a beautiful finale. 
And we will end with a discussion of a scientific paper on coral babies with some new research fresh off the press on how their environment might prepare them for climate change. So let's do it. Let's dive in. The driving question of this episode. What do Pacific Islanders think about land back? Before we begin the episode, I would like to issue a disclaimer that this conversation is not an easy one to have. It is complex, and in the Pacific, it is so nuanced. This isn't even something I feel comfortable having only one episode about, so fair warning, there will be other topics I like to cover in the future pertaining to land. This is just a start, because you gotta get that glidey or canoe out of the lagoon first before making progress, right? Even for us indigenous Pacific people, this conversation is not easy, nor is it simple. This episode is supposed to confront while simultaneously comforting your uneasiness around land back and reparation conversations and actions. Please take your time in listening, exploring where in your thoughts and body your discomfort shows up. If you want to go the whole nine yards, pull up your notes app on your phone and write down every time you hear someone say something that makes you feel uncomfortable or gives you an unconscious negative reaction. At the end of the episode, if you care for supporting indigenous peoples, then this will be a list of your internal biases which you can work on. Acknowledging and unpacking how these conversations make you feel is an important part of personal growth. And you could emerge on the other side of this a better person after hearing what we have to say. To get us started, here is a great passage about land back, which I pulled from one of the first indigenous resources I googled which I linked in the show notes, meant primarily for non-Indigenous people living on Indigenous lands to get them oriented, but I found it helpful for understanding as well. While these words, land back, seem straightforward enough, this phrase encompasses a complicated and intergenerational web of ideas and movements. When I hear Indigenous youth and land protectors chant land back at a rally, I know it can mean the literal restoration of land ownership. When grandmothers and knowledge keepers say it, I tend to think it means more of the stewardship and protection of Mother Earth. When indigenous political leaders say it, it often means comprehensive land claims and self-governing agreements. No matter what meaning is attached, we as indigenous nations have an urge to reconnect with our land in meaningful ways. Truth. That was a great passage from an awesome organization called the 4Rs Youth Movement. Um, Once again, I have the link in the show notes, but this, along with Dr. Trask's quote, sets a great stage for this episode in terms of understanding. Land back means so much, yet in some ways, due to colonialism, it doesn't always mean land in the Western capitalistic sense of the word, does it? If land is inseparable from the culture, and the culture is inseparable from the people, then land back also means culture back. It means restoring the right to occupy, practice, and perpetuate our cultures safely, sustainably, and freely. To build village meeting places. To provide safe spaces for our children to learn their culture. To grow medicinal plants. I'm not talking about those kinds of medicinal plants unless you're talking about those kinds of medicinal plants, wink, wink. But there's so much more to this discussion. 
So let me turn to you, my beautiful Deep Pacific listener. When you stop to think about land and what it has meant to you, do you have a land to call yours? Does your family have the ability to pass down to you land that has been kept in the family for generations? Does your people in the place where you live or have roots in have the ability to safely practice their culture in places that are easily accessible? Can you afford to live where you are from? In this case, I am extremely privileged in this space. And yet it is traumatic at the same time because so many of my Pacifica people don't have this. They don't have easy access to this. Some of them must fight for it. And some might not ever see land that they can call their own return to them in their lifetime. Let us not forget either that some of us stand to lose our lands in our lifetimes as well due to climate change. The Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu are great examples. What happens to a culture that must be uprooted because the sea must reclaim their land once again? Colonialism adds another layer of complexity to this. I hope you see why this is such a unique issue in the Pacific. This series on decolonization and this episode in particular is about us taking on colonialism at the deepest depths of the Marianas Trench. Just by having these conversations, this is resistance. Another thing to keep in mind, those who are speaking on this topic today are asked to imagine the future. The things they say they would look forward to in a world where we decolonize our relationship with the land. Some of the things they ask for are heartbreakingly simple. Indigenous people being healthy. Being able to provide for ourselves. Seeing our lands return to the custodianship of the original caretakers. That is not a radical idea if taken at face value. So please... Allow us to idealize, allow us to wax poetic, allow us to dream for the future that we are striving for, for the one we want for our future generations. Allow yourself that same right. Even if others tell you it's a pipe dream, even if others laugh and say it'll never happen, entertain your inner native child. So let us continue to talk story let us think, let us fight, let us form this network of resistance, of solidarity across the Pacific for our siblings in Aotearoa, in Tahiti, in the occupied Hawaiian Kingdom, in West Papua, in Guahan, in all of the Pacific Ocean, from the Philippines down to Australia, for our people, for all indigenous people living today, for our ancestors and for future generations to come. Kia ora ko Mākiri Ahau Heuri tēnei o Ngāti Tūwharetoa me Ngāti Kahu e noho ana au ki Tamaki Makaurau Aotearoa. Uh, kia ora tātou. Kia ora, my name is Mākiri. Um, I am of the Ngāti Tūwharetoa and Ngāti Kahu tribes and I am based in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, my Twitter handle is at M-A-C-K-E-R-E and everyone mostly calls me Mac. When hearing um, slash seeing Indigenous people say land back, what word scenarios come to mind? Um, for me, the scenario that comes to mind when I hear that is ihumato. 
It's the name of a place in Auckland that was under threat of being developed and members of the local tribe are against this and have advocated for the land to be returned to them to be cultivated into community gardens. Um, Ihu Matau has sacrificed a lot for the development of our city of Auckland over time. So I think the current generation decided that that was not what they wanted to continue doing. So it's great to see that there's progress in activation and activism and um, the call out that they made to people to come and join them to help occupy the land, which I was part of. And to see that the voices of our Indigenous people are being heard. And at the moment, they're waiting to see how they can work with the government to make sure that it isn't developed in the near future. Um, what is your positionality with regards to your culture and its ties to the land? So my positionality, I classify myself as an urban Māori. So I am somebody who is from two different tribes in two different areas. But I was born and raised in Auckland, which is away from both of those places. I was raised in a city slash urban environment. And I am physically disconnected from my, my land where I'm from, both my tribes. But spiritually, I'm not. I consider myself being part of that land where I come from and that it is part of who I am and I take it with me wherever I go. How can we decolonize our views on land and why should we? So the way I try and help others to decolonize the way that they think about land is to view it as a living, breathing being. Um, in Te Māori or in the Māori worldview, we see the land as an atua, a god, um, and her name is Papatuanuku, and we see her as such, we see her as something that is living, and although um, she provides us with a lot, at the end of our lives we go back to her, um, so it's important for us to, you know, coexist with her rather than try and take from her, and why should we? Because at the end of the day, without our whenua, we are nothing, it is part of who we are as people, we are one and the same with our whenua, and it helps keeps us alive and I think the westernized perspective of things or the colonized perspective of things is that um, land is seen as a resource but actually it's a living being and we coexist with her that's how that's how I see it anyway um, where do you see the land back movement going so in Aotearoa New Zealand um, Māori are becoming more and more part of the conversations and I think there will always be middle grounds in the westernized context of things however I would like to see more Māori having more of a say over our land I'd like to see iwi more involved in the decision making circles for our whole country things are slowly starting to turn I know in my iwi of Ngāti Tūwharetoa we've recently received the rights to monitor and track the movements of our lake of our awa and this is a new deal that's happened between our tribe and the council and I think there's going to be more of that happening. I want to see more of that happening. But also just seeing Māori more in the places where they can actually influence the decisions. And I've seen that happen more and more as well. In terms of land back, I think that would be the way in which um, we achieve that is by being in those rooms, being, being there making those decisions and just being generally more involved. Um, and I see that happening more and more. But that's not to say it's not a hard road. I've seen all kinds of different situations where it's a hard journey for our people. But I think that and I hope that by the time I have grandchildren that they are able to have more say in what happens to their whenua as it should be. 
Beautiful response, Makere, with a Maori perspective. She is passionate about her land. She's indigenous to there. I loved how she mentioned that she's happy to be seeing more Maori being involved in the decision-making of their own land. The example she gave was the right to monitor and track their lake or awa. The most logical place to start with land back, of course, is giving the indigenous people of a place the rights to nature and to have control over the decisions made for a place. Thinking about this, it makes sense, but this is not where we should end our representation. Just because we are indigenous does not mean that we should be confined to nature as our start. We need to start having indigenous representation in all levels of the decision-making process for places. Like others will mention further in, it just makes sense. In Palau, if you're not Palauan, you don't get to fish. Why? Because what happens when you start allowing fishing rights to everyone? We know what happens, but like I said, indigenous representation is needed in all other aspects of places, at all levels of government, and in private sectors as well. Though getting us involved in the natural sciences for one is going to make the biggest difference now in terms of the progress we need to make to slow down climate change and global warming. We need to get more involved. Indigenous people, my deep Pacifica, all other listeners, we need to get more involved. I included a link in the show notes to how you can follow Makere and how you can support Ihumatao. Thank you, Makere, for your incredible first-time contribution to this topic. Aloha mai kakou. All right, gangue. My name is Nainoa Kahiwana Alefayo. I come from a Hawaiian, Samoan, Tokelauan father and my white mother. I grew up on the big island of Hawaii in Hilo and Kailua-Kona. And since 2016, I've been settling here in Kaimuki on the island of Oahu. I am a Hawaiian studies major at a community college here on Oahu. And next fall, I will be transferring back to Hilo to finish my bachelor's in Hawaiian studies at the University of Hawaii, Mahilo. The land back movement is a very important one, and it is very near and dear to my heart. If you follow me on Twitter, it's kind of obvious. But the first thing I think of when I think of land back is Aina. You see, Aina is more than just land to the Hawaiians, to the Kanaka Maoli. Because Aina is everything between the tips of the mountains and the edges of the reef. It is the land and the water. But Aina is more than that as well. Aina is family. You see, we share the same origins as these islands. Wakea and his many wives created these islands. And then Wakea and his wife, Ho'ohoku Kalani, birthed a stillborn child. He was buried in the ground, and at that spot is where the first Kalo sprouted. This Kalo's name was Haloanakalo Kapalili, named after his long stems with the leaves that flutter in the wind. Ho'ohoku Kalani's second child was a healthy boy. His name was Haloa. He was named after his brother. And Haloa's duty was to care for Haloa Nakalo Kapalili and to care for these islands that Wakea provided. Kanaka Maoli are descended from Haloa and we share his same duties to care for this land and to keep balance in the universe. 
land back means that we heal the aina. We regain control of our own aina and we kick out the military of the U.S. empire that has been here for over a hundred years. We kick out this military that has been abusing these lands, treating us as target practice, as their playthings. When I think of land back, I think of natives around the world with self-determination over their own lands, over their own aina. I see restrictions that foreigners have to abide by. I see restrictions of what foreigners can do in our aina. I see us reinstating some kapu that will preserve species and protect biodiversity in Hawaii. If you're wondering, the kapu I'm talking about, or the main one that I think about, would be similar to the kapu that we placed during makahiki season. Because in makahiki season, which takes place in Ho'oilo, the wet season, the oceans are rough. And we are not supposed to be in the ocean. Ho'oilo is a time where the fish get to replenish their populations. That is how we keep the numbers up. That is how we prevent overfishing from killing off every species. That is how we prevent species going extinct. We let them repopulate. I see Kamakamaoli rebuilding the loko'i'a, the fish ponds, and the lo'i, the kalo farms. I see Hawaiians being fed with food that is grown in their own aina. I see Hawaiians running Hawaii. I see Hawaiian lands in Hawaiian hands. I see our gods rejoicing at the healing of our lands. I see Oceania as a thriving community independent of outside influence. I see Pacifica everywhere sailing to and fro, reconnecting and strengthening ties with their oceanic cousins. I see no colonizers. Oddly enough, huh? I see no colonizers, only allies helping uplift and restore our greatness. How can we decolonize our views on land and why should we? Well, we should because our current views on land are strictly views that are imposed onto us. I call these thoughts that are imposed on us single stories. These single stories are narratives that have been told so many times that it becomes the norm. It's accepted because we've heard it over and over through generations. So we decolonize our minds by rewriting these single stories. We rewrite the story that the U.S. Empire is the only reason these islands are still free. We rewrite the story that we need to keep building resorts for visitors rather than provide homes for the homeless and provide homes for the 29,000 plus Hawaiians waiting on the Department of Hawaiian Homelands list. We rewrite the story that we need to be at least 50% Hawaiian to be on that list. If you don't know this by now, blood quantum means nothing. You don't quantify what you are, you just are. I am Hawaiian and Samoan and Tokelauan and white, like I said before, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> we rewrite the story that we can't feed ourselves and we need to import these goods. We write the story that if you have money and resources, you can do whatever you want with our aina. That's not how that works, okay? The land back movement is going to great places. One example that is very exciting for us, Kanaka Maoli. Basically, the Kingdom of Hawaii's government, which is still a thing, and... Some United Nations officials are 
proposing that the General Assembly of the United Nations revisit Resolution 1469, which is the bogus resolution that the U.S. proposed in 1959 to acquire and absorb Hawaii and Alaska into their union. When the General Assembly revisits this, they will see the fraud that the U.S. has been committing for over 60 years. And when they find this fraud, which they will because it is there, because there's no treaty of annexation, they will be obligated to pay reparations and assist us in rebuilding our nation. That is very exciting. That is literally land back. Besides that, land back is headed toward a place where the oppressors of the Pacific are no longer in control. We're going to a place where natives are in control of their ancestral homelands. No indigenous person should be forced to move away from their home for financial reasons or any reason. We're headed toward a place where indigenous people around the globe facilitate the healing of our aina and reverse the effects of climate change, which is a problem that has been preventable. We've known about climate change for decades. And what do the empires do? Absolutely nothing. I see Pacifica readapting their native lifestyles. I see us eating the right foods, the foods that we are meant to eat. I see us being healthy. I see us healthy. I see the Aina healthy. That is the ultimate goal of land back. Self-determination and healing. That concludes my piece. Mahalo Nui to Kalani at Deep Pacific for allowing me to speak on her amazing podcast. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter. Uncle Poi Dog is the handle. U-N-K-O-P-O-I-D-O-G. That is up to you. It's cool if you don't. It's cooler if you do. Until next time. Ua mau kea o ka aina i ka pono. Mahalo. Ahui ho. Sainama Aussie Nainoa for that awesome first-time contribution. I've included a link to his Twitter profile in the show notes, so give him a follow. He is hilarious. I loved that myth. I think it's so important that we preserve our mythology into the present and the future. And you see how important the Kalu plant or the taro plant is to Pacifica people. Think about what Nainoa said. What does it say about who is making the decisions in government when we prioritize building hotels rather than schools, prisons rather than community programs, more than we put towards benefiting the indigenous population and providing homes for the indigenous population of a place? A lot of the times, they are significant portions of the homeless population. Great points to think about. Though, to be honest, the part I loved the most was probably when he said, that in a decolonized and free Hawaii where Kanaka Maoli have their land back, you will look around and see Kanaka happy and healthy and see only respectful settler allies. I love that. No colonizers, especially not today. Remember that if Hawaii had been left alone by the U.S. and their government and culture had been left to flourish, this could have been a reality. This path they were on was disrupted The path the Chamorro people were on was disrupted. It is a deep and egregious wrong that needs to be righted. The reference Nainoa made in the episode was the same one forwarded to the Deep Pacific Twitter by one of our awesome Kanaka Maoli listeners, John. So shout out to John for looking out. 
I've included a link to it in the show notes. It was a presentation given by a longtime UN official about revisiting the legality of the Hawaiian Kingdom and Alaska being a part of the U.S., basically giving a great argument for the case that Hawaii being a part of the Union was fraudulent. Because it was. This is not something to waste breath arguing over, but if you disagree, take a look at the show notes and watch the video. That's why it's there. Self-determination and healing is the goal of land back, according to Nainoa, which is why this is a part of our decolonization series. Because land back is an intrinsic part of decolonizing ourselves and our places. Thank you, Nainoa Sainama'asi, for your awesome first-time contribution to this incredibly important topic. Half a day, my name is Sila'an Nicholas a.k.a. underscore Tatamona underscore on Instagram, a.k.a. underscore Menhalum underscore, uh, also on Instagram. That's my art page. When hearing slash seeing indigenous people say land back, what words or scenarios come to mind, right? Personally, the whole land back movement is the movement behind the ideology that native lands belong in native hands. Well, that's because natives are the best stewards of their own lands. They've lived on it for thousands of years, growing, learning, evolving into how to best care for it. Land back is a correction of a colonial wrong. It's putting the destiny of a people back into their own hands so that they can determine for themselves how they want to progress in this life. It is giving power and a sense of belonging to a disempowered and displaced people. Land back is the prevention of the further destruction and desecration of our ancestral lands. The military is tilling our soil and our ancestors are literally being turned over in their graves. Land back started in 1671 when Matapeng killed San Vitoris for quote-unquote poisoning his daughter with his holy water, starting a nearly 30-year war with the Spanish, which at the time was an imperial superpower in the world. Now, the American military is threatening to poison all of our sons and daughters and water by building a live-firing range on top of our main source of water. We will all be vulnerable to lead poisoning. If Matapeng was here, what would he do? Land back is proof that we never resolved our conflict with the Spanish. We've been given the short end of the stick that came from a tree that we grew on our own land. And we've been given that short end for far too long. Land back is proof that the warriors who fought in 1671 did not die. They are here, living in those of us who continue to stand. What is my positionality with regards to my culture and its ties to my land? Uh, well, personally, I believe that land is culture. They're inseparable. Land shapes culture. It is its mother, if you will. Because we can define culture roughly as a set of effective practical behaviors, customs, or traditions that sustain the lives of a people. Without a motherland, a culture is orphaned. 
people with no connection to their land likely will have a hard time connecting to their people and ultimately a harder time connecting to themselves. To be rooted in your land is to be connected to the tens of thousands of ancestors who lived before you. To be rooted in your land is to be rooted in yourself. What are we if not products of our environments, right? I have ocean in my blood, ashes in my bones, and the trees in each breath. This land is responsible for everything that I am. This land sustained my ancestors, and therefore, it is my ancestor. One symbol of Chamorro people, whether from Guam, Luta, Saipan, Tinian, or North, is the Laristone. A testament to the strength, determination, knowledge, wisdom, perseverance, and overall sense of belonging of the ancient Chamorro people. We have solidified our place and made our mark in this world. There are no other islands you can find Chamorro culture, no other lands that you can find Lati stones. No land, no Lati stones. No land, no Chamorro people. How can we decolonize our views on land and why should we? Uh, well, the Western mindset around land, right, is there is something to be possessed here now by me that I can exploit or use for my own personal gain. Well, at least in my experience, that's what I've learned it is, right? But land, truthfully, right, is the source of life, the mother of us all. But our sacred lands are being used to house weapons of mass destruction. Tools whose sole purpose is to take the life that the land has so graciously given us. The military of our current colonial oppressors is using our children's land to learn how to more efficiently kill. This is completely ass backwards. The decolonized view of land is that it is not something that we own, but rather something we borrow from our children, something entrusted to us by our ancestors as their last wish. It is their legacy. Land should be used to preserve and perpetuate life. Land should be the means by which we evolve and advance ourselves in health and happiness as brothers and sisters. But imagine if everyone used their land to hurt each other under the guise of national security. There would be no people left to protect and no land left to preserve. The military is the great fish that is devouring Guahan. Their fences eat more and more of our island. If we do not decolonize, we may be swallowed whole and our children will not know life in their own context, only existence in the belly of the beast. I think the land back movement is crucial to decolonization. So the two go hand in hand and it's also crucial to the revitalization of the language, culture, and traditions of our people. Like I said before, Landback seeks to empower a people that have borne the brunt of colonial injustice for nearly 500 years, in our context at least. Land provides the setting and the context that culture, language, traditions, and indigenous lifeways need to thrive, or even just to exist at all. In my opinion, the Landback movement 
is nothing new. In fact, my whole awareness around the issue started with Nashon Chamoru, or the Chamoru Nation, of which my parents were both very active members, and that has a lot to do with my upbringing as well. This uh, activist organization was founded in the 90s by Chamorros who realized the importance of protecting our land because they saw it as the source of our lives as Chamorro people. This organization is responsible for a lot of what we know today about our ancient history. In fact, the members of this organization were the first people in contemporary times to don the spondless money beads and Sanahi pendants of old. They even protested in the form of camping out and hunger striking in front of the governor's office at Adaloop that eventually contributed to the enactment of the Chamorro Land Trust Commission, which is literally giving excess government lands back to natives. It's definitely important to know where we come from in this land back movement to know where we're going. We never know what little actions we do can ripple into waves and impact people in ways that can change their lives. I can't say that I have the answer or the best way to decolonize, but all I know is that there is no one way to decolonize. We are not a monolith and our, our issue that we face here every day is very nuanced and there's so many different factors at play into why we are living in the circumstances that we are living. We all have a part, a duty, a responsibility and a God-given right to use what knowledge, skill, talents, wisdom, and even privileges that we've been given and gifted to help look after one another, to protect our land, to teach our children, to care for and respect our elders, to honor our ancestors, and ultimately to continue to live as Chamorro people for the next 4,000 years. The first learned reaction I had to listening to this piece was when I heard Hila'an say, Natives are the best stewards of our lands. Why would I, as a native, have that reaction? Because as a local, not a native, just as a person who lives here, we are constantly fed the lie that we can't take care of our own land because of illegal dumping, illegal poaching, because our beaches are always dirty, our trails. How can native land fare better in native hands, is what we are always told. But think about who makes the decisions in our governments. What kinds of people are they? And what have their priorities been? Think about the economy Think about the messages being perpetuated through generations of the people doing these activities. Have there been community programs and consistent messaging to them about taking care of the land? Do their cultures support it? Do their economic circumstances allow them to understand? All our lives, we are told we can't take care of our own land. Some people begin to believe it. So if you shared this initial reaction with me, that is okay. I definitely check myself now whenever I have these reactions too. I don't believe them anymore, but it'll take a bit longer for me to not have them at all. I do believe now that native lands in native hands is better. Hila'an mentions that land back is not anything new, and he's exactly right. 
As Pacific people, we have resistance and persistence in our blood. It is written inside of our hearts, our na'au ikurason mami, which beat in rhythm with the ocean waves. This movement might only be coming up again now in popular culture, but it started and has been carried on the backs of our ancestors long ago with their own movements, which we may or may not even know about because so much of our histories were orally passed down and recorded only through a colonizer's perspective. But why else would we be here? I will tell you. We were put here to care for this land and our fellow human beings, to provide a better society for our futures. Which brings me to my next point. The U.S. military has been poisoning our future generations and waters. That's a fact known all around the Pacific. From Hawaii to Vietnam to the Philippines, Okinawa, the Marshall Islands, and the Marianas. Soon to be in Palau as well, possibly. So let's say a prayer to that, that minds are changed over there. I appreciate that Hilaan called attention to this fact because it's simply not well known by many others unless your family is educated in these issues or if you seek out that knowledge for yourself. Many people think that if it was a big enough problem, if the military was a big enough problem, the public would and should know, right? Well, how would the public know when newspapers and the media are owned by military sympathizers? When we've been force-fed propaganda about this nation? So, if you didn't know, now you know. Feel free to join our movement in being incredibly vocal against the military and the military buildup, wherever you are, wherever it is relevant. Use the hashtag DemilitarizeThePacific or DemilitarizeOceania, which is what we've been using. And listen to our episodes on RIMPAC as well. Hila'an says that the warriors who fought in our histories did not die. They are here, living, breathing, their salty blood flowing through our veins. We have the power of the ocean and the will of our ancestors inside us. Whew, great stuff, right? Thank you, Hila'an, for your contribution to this topic and important discussion as a tsamoru from Guahan. If you would like to follow Hila'an for more, I'll include a link to the Instagram accounts he mentioned in the show notes. And now you, my awesome listener, need a break. Why don't you drink some water, unclench your jaw, roll out your shoulders a bit and your neck, you know, do a little stretching... And we will be right back. Ya orana. My name is Teotuahiri. I am of the islands of Tahiti, but I grew up in the illegally occupied kingdom of Hawaii. I am speaking as a settler on this occupied land. I speak with respect as it is my duty to always fight for the decolonization and deoccupation of Hawaii. Land back is a concept rooted in decolonization and the restoration of indigenous sovereignty. The return of our stolen, looted land is the beginning of the necessary change that must happen if we are to solve the climate crisis, in addition to solving the plethora of other problems that capitalism and colonization have created. In the Pacific, as well as in many other indigenous ideology, we had no concept of private property. The idea of owning the land, the Aina, the Fenua, was completely foreign to us. Prior to the colonization of our land, 
the relationship we had with the land mirrored our familial relationships. The land, the Fenua, is our original mother. We once understood the importance of caring for her. In Hawaii, we are familiar with Malama Aina. We care for the land in the same ways we care for those we love. The Fenua is our first teacher. She teaches us how to love and how to be loved, how to give and receive, never taking more than is necessary. Land back is entwined with rekindling our pilina to the aina, healing the relationship our colonizers have tried so hard to destroy. Land back gives us, the people of this land, the ability to choose how our land and resources are used. No longer would our oceans, our earth, our people be exploited for the purpose of capitalist greed. Land back inherently requires the destruction of capitalism, the exploitation, commodification, and objectification our land and people have endured all link back to capitalism. As capitalism was first establishing itself in Europe, nobility realized they needed greater sources of wealth to exploit and hoard in order to create the economic structure we now have. In order to fund the shift to capitalism, the European powers decided to colonize much of the world. The colonization of our land is how Europe was able to hoard the resources necessary to create capitalism. Without the theft of our land and resources, capitalism would never have been created. Capitalism inherently relies on exploitation and theft. Land back allows no space for exploitation, only subsistence. Land back requires an entire ideological shift. As we distance ourselves from the greed created by capitalism and move towards communal subsistence. Land back is honestly the only way we can save humanity. Without land back, humanity will continue to fall deeper into this well of racism, individualism, patriarchy, and capitalist greed. Our planet does not have the time for us to slowly realize these truths. We must learn and understand that so many of the functions of westernization are designed to exploit and disenfranchise our indigenous communities. Land back gives us the power to control our land, our resources, and our lives. Marururoa for listening. Saina Maasi Te a beautiful, poetic, educational piece on an important topic as per usual. Follow her on Twitter for more of her beautiful poetry. She is one of the favorites of this podcast for good reason. Te speaks as a settler on Hawaiian land, as a diasporic Tahitian who supports the decolonization of Hawaii. She mentions, as she actually constantly mentions in many of her contributions to Deep Pacific, rekindling our pilina to the aina. The pilina, meaning the connection we have to our original ancestral mother. Much like that problematic but beautiful movie Avatar, the one with the blue peoples. We must reconnect. Our power must be restored. Because our power lies in our land and our connection to that land. Land back is anti-capitalism because capitalism requires capitalizing off resources to extract the most profit. And if you can cut corners and get away with it, then have at it. Sounds very much like the current administration, to be honest. 
The last thing I will leave you with from Teatua Hede's piece, an important PSA. Our planet does not have the time for us to slowly realize these truths. We need to be acting as whole populations of people on lowering our carbon footprints, starting yesterday. And there are many ways to do that. Don't ask me, just Google it and take advice only from reliable indigenous sources, please. Thank you once again, Thea, for your incredible contribution to this topic. I appreciate you. Aloha mai kako. This is Kavana Kapuhua. When I think of land back, I think of one thing. I think of liberation. And I think of liberation because the liberation of indigenous peoples, and in my case of Hawaiian people, is tied to the liberation of our land. As with most indigenous peoples, our land is occupied. And so long as it remains occupied, there can be no liberation for our people. There can be no justice for our people in an occupied land. And so for, you know, the justice and, and healing of our people, we need liberation. And that is land back. You know, as indigenous people, our entire existence is tied to the aina, is tied to the land. In order for us ourselves to be liberated from these harmful and oppressive systems that are capitalism, that are imperialism and colonialism, we need land back. We need sovereignty over our land. Indigenous sovereignty is the core of land back. And so when I think of land back, things that come to mind are its survival in the purest sense of the word. With the current state of affairs and the climate crisis and the impending doom that is being brought down upon us by the American military and hundred corporations polluting the earth to the point where they'll make a lot of money and then kill the rest of us by making it unlivable for us who cannot afford whatever crazy treatments they come up for to survive. Land back is the chance to survive the climate crisis, to resist it, to turn back the clock in part by undoing the harmful systems that are continuing to steam forward toward our doom. I think of indigenous sovereignty over the land and reconnecting us to the land because as indigenous people, we, you know, we are intrinsically linked to our Aina. Despite today, as we continue to restore that connection through cultural practices, be they working in a lo'i or rebuilding loko'i of fish ponds, engaging with the land through forest restoration or any other way of engaging with aina. While we continue to do that, we continue to do it now under a capitalist regime that occupies our homeland, that is not of our own making. So long as that persists, so long as we do not have sovereignty over our land, we do not have liberation, our ability to connect with our land, our ability to have that connection in Pilina will always be stifled. Our impact on the health of our environment will always be limited because it will always be superseded by those capitalist interests. Land back not only is sovereignty and liberation, but it is the collapse of capitalism because capitalism is what took our land through its machinations of imperialism and colonialism it is what is continuing to kill our people through war and exploitation of labor and workers and the continued oppression of people of color and indigenous peoples. And it is what is killing our planet as it continues to exploit and destroy natural resources and natural environments and ecosystems, all for the shareholder's buck. When I think of land back, I think of a world where indigenous people are once again sovereign of their lands where once again, we are able to practice our culture without fear of 
discrimination or harm where the practice of our culture is not a tool of survival it's just a way of living it's not seen necessarily as an act of resistance because it's the way to live it's not in opposition to colonizers because colonizers are no more they're gone and so i think of land back as it's not just a utopia it is it is in a sense utopian but it's a utopia we need to be striving for it's the utopia we make real without that utopian idea of land back the alternative is the continuation of the climate crisis and the continued destruction of our lands and the extinction of indigenous people which is not an acceptable outcome you know we have to continue in this struggle toward land back as a movement as a cohesive grassroots organized movement to ensure not only the survival of our indigenous cultures and peoples but the survival of all people you know, not only take back our lands, but also to decolonize our views of land. With capitalism comes private property, and through private property comes the dispossession of indigenous people from their lands, comes the exploitation of labor, comes the never-ending war machine of empire, and comes the never-ending exploitation of land and natural resources that is corporate industry to fully realize land back we need to decolonize our views of this we need to understand that capitalism is a barrier between us and our land and a sustainable way of life we need to understand that capitalism it is the tyrant that continues to hold our land hostage from our people to ensure that we spend our lives striving to reconnect to have to pay our dues to the capitalists who continue to control our access to our own lands meanwhile exploiting them leading to the destruction of our lands before our eyes Land back is intrinsically tied to an anti-capitalist point of view and way of living. Through to the defeat of capitalism, can we achieve the liberation of ourselves and our lands? Once that is done, we can restore indigenous systems and community care and land management and land stewardship and ways of governance and harmony. Liberation and harmony. Liberation of people, liberation of land, liberation from harmful systems, but also harmony. Harmony with our land, harmony with the ecosystems and natural systems which govern the natural world and our environment that we live in, and harmony with each other. No longer are we trying to get ahead of each other. Instead, we are in harmony with each other, working to build a better world for all. We can achieve land back and restore our connection to our aina, our lands, restore our understanding of ancestral knowledge that was gained by our ancestors through their intrinsic ties to the land, through indigenous science and observation of the world around them. And so land back is, it's the world as it was meant to be and the world as it needs to be for all people. Ooh, moving fiery peace given by our favorite angry Hawaiian, Kavena. Did anyone else just say damn every time he said doom because... Man, you're not wrong, but damn. I hope you note my awesome deep Pacifica that is three contributors so far who have said that we're trying to kick the military out. And why? Because those contributors all come from places that are considered targets or weapons or shields for the United States. Both Guam and Hawaii are built up to be the defense and the offense for a country that in Guam's case does not allow us to vote and in either case does not value the input of the indigenous people in their own lands. 
It means almost nothing if we don't see indigenous representation in all aspects of government and through all stages of decision making. Both Guam and Hawaii have way too much settler colonialism going on, to be honest. So I hope you, my awesome listener, understands where these sentiments come from. A great example of this is Guam cannot close our airport and isolate ourselves and neither can Hawaii from tourism coming from the United States. When almost all of the rest of the world's major countries have closed off their borders to American citizens, because we are captives of America, we cannot close our borders to American citizens. And that is just frankly so scary because those are the people that will go around not wearing masks. Those are the people that hold anti-mask rallies. Those are the people that do not stay six feet away. So, you know... We need to decolonize, for real. We need to get our land back. Kavena mentions that in a decolonized future where Kanaka Maoli have land back, the practice of culture is not a tool of survival nor an act of resistance. It is just the way to live. Powerful stuff. We should not have to justify practicing our culture with anyone. But it is important to come into culture from a decolonized standpoint as well. Colonized minds, even if they are indigenous, do harm by justifying their practice of culture and not being grounded in culture. Someone who, for example, spears, you know, 20 fish on the reef to flex for the Instagram and then turns around and says that they were practicing their culture. No, you were practicing your culture when you speared four fish. It does not count as practicing your culture when you speared 20 If 20 fish is 16 more than what you needed, and our cultures knew the value of fishing sustainably and only taking what you needed, then that is not culture that you're practicing. That is literally capitalism. That's 16 fish not allowed to grow bigger and reproduce because of your greed. That's 16 fish sitting in the bottom of your outside freezer. And for what? Instagram likes? Anyway, decolonize how you see land. Decolonize how you see resources. I know it's not easy to do, but this is important and it's necessary work we must do. Like Kavena said, the alternative future if we do not is the continuation of the climate crisis and the destruction of indigenous people and cultures, which sounds like an over-exaggeration, but come on, it's 2020. Australia, Oregon, and California were burning. Nevada had snow when I lived there last year, in February. Super typhoons and Category 5 hurricanes are the new normal. This is not an exaggeration. If you don't want to hear this, I am so sorry, but at the end of the day, people like me, people like Hilaan, people like Tomas, like Haani, like Kavena, do not have a choice but to fight. And trust, we would love a break. Kavena has contributed to past episodes on RIMPAC and decolonization, so definitely give those a listen if you want to get into it. I will leave you with one final line from Kavena. Land back is the world as it was meant to be, and the world that needs to be, for all people. Thank you, Sainamaasi, once again, Kavena, for your contribution to this topic. I appreciate you. And to Kalani in Deep Pacific for allowing me to enter this space again and share my thoughts on today's topic. Hafid everyone, my name is Tomas, but you can call me Masi.
I am Deep Pacific's resident Galita, which means that I am an indigenous person of the island of Luta in the Marianas Archipelago. Our chain of islands comprises two political entities, Guahan, the southernmost island and a territory of the United States, and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, which is made up of the other islands in the chain to which my home island is the furthest south. Now, why am I giving a short geopolitical introduction? Well, it's because the way our islands are currently set up, it shapes and informs my position on the subject of land and land back. Luta is just a little over 50 miles north of Guahan. That's not a large stretch of ocean between the two islands. But because of this partition, the two political entities have land laws that are at two different sites. Guahan has an open market on land, which means that anyone with enough capital can come to the island and purchase land. In Luta and the other northern islands, we have the opposite. We have strict laws that protect our land. One example of these laws is Article 12, which states that only people of Chamorro and Wafalawash ancestry have rights to land ownership. My early childhood was spent in Luta, and from a very young age, I've come to understand the importance of indigenous land ownership in relation to our culture. See, for me, our culture is intrinsically tied to our land, and I would argue that there are many indigenous people in the NMI and throughout this earth who feel the same way. One of the core tenets of our culture is a concept known as Tintuli, which translates to reciprocity. This could be best summed up in the idiomatic phrase, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. It's about returning action. For example, if I invite you to my birthday party and you bring a dish for the potluck table, well, at your next party or celebration, I will bring a dish to share at the potluck table. This is a simple example of this concept in practice, and there are many other forms that this concept can be realized. But for me, the best way I see Tintuli realized in our everyday lives is through our relationship with the land. It's no secret that land provides resources and sustenance for humans. And my people have a firm understanding of what it means to receive these gifts from the land. So when we receive these gifts of the land, whether it be building materials for shelter or plants and animals for food, in return, we understand that through Tintuli, we must give something back to the land. For us, this return gift comes in the form of our stewardship of the land. When we take care of it, in turn, the land will always take care of us by providing the resources and food we need to live prosperously. In short, it's a cyclical practice that is based on giving back what has been given. This act of Tintuli reaffirms the utmost core value of our culture in Afamalik which could be best understood as interdependence or understanding that for all of us in the community to live prosperously, we must be able to turn to each other in times of need and expect that a hand will always be reaching out to help. To understand why this concept is so important to us, one must be able to comprehend what it means to live in the middle of the ocean, thousands of miles away from major land masses with much more resources and more groups of people. We need to look to each other to keep our community strongly intact and thriving. But this anaphomalic spirit is not just practice among the people. It is everything with which we come into contact. It is extended to the land and sea that continues to provide for us. When we can depend on the land to provide, the land can depend on us to ensure that it will keep providing.
Lastly, we can also see how this intrinsic relationship between people and land in my culture is practiced through another concept we have, pati, which means to share. And for those of us who are familiar with this term, we most often see it practiced in areas such as farming or fishing. For example, let's say three people gather at a beach to go fishing. They fish for a few hours and catch over 30 marine species, such as various fish, clams, lobsters, crabs, etc. At the end of the fishing trip, the three people stand over their catch and begin to determine how to split the rewards. It could be split evenly, or the one who caught the most fish can be given a larger share. Whatever the case may be, there is this idea that because we all put in work for this catch, we all get to share the rewards. This could also work in another way, such as a farming co-op of five members who can divvy up the harvest according to whatever parameters they set up. For me, it is clear that these three concepts all work in harmony to ensure that the people of the land not only take care of each other, but they also take care of the land that provides for them. Growing up in Luta, I've seen these concepts practiced time and time again, during joyful celebrations such as birthdays and other rites of passage, and even during times of distress, like when a typhoon wrecks through the island. Because we lead with our core nationalic value, this allows us to reinforce the other two values, Tinsuli and Pati. These three values practiced together reiterates our inherent connectedness to the land and how it shapes our culture. And my people understand that the land will continue to provide for us during any time, so long as we continue to practice interdependence, reciprocity, and sharing with each other and the land. Since understanding this idea of the interconnectedness of land and people at an early age, by having witnessed it in practice in my home island, it was such a shock to me when I settled in Guahan and witnessed how the current economic and political system here disrupted and continues to disrupt this relationship for the indigenous people of Guahan. Because Guahan doesn't have the same land ownership rights as us in the CNMI, and anyone can just come here and purchase land willy-nilly, the indigenous people here are displaced and disenfranchised of their rightful claim to these lands. And I've come to experience how violent this situation can be. It changes the culture of the people. It forces them to choose between who they are natively and who they can become through entering the colonial arena. And when the indigenous people choose the latter, they shed themselves of their inherent connectedness to the land and the cultural values that were formed through this relationship. Instead, the land here is now viewed as a commodity, a resource or a product on which to capitalize, as opposed to living in balance with it. When the indigenous people here cannot guarantee their livelihoods will be secure because they don't have laws to protect their rights to land ownership, we see how this violently erupts to change the cultural dynamic beyond their control. No longer can they turn to the land for materials and food. They have to drive to supermarkets and pay ridiculous prices for basic materials and foods. Why must the indigenous people of this land unwillingly give up who they are to participate in a system that does not value their input or their knowledges and practices? It is because of this stark juxtaposition between people of the same culture and oppositely governed lands that I stand firmly grounded in my beliefs that land should always remain in the hands of the original inhabitants because our ancestors knew that to live at a distance from one another and to live prosperously, we need to have access to our lands and we must be the ones who determine how the lands and their resources should be managed because we've been doing it for millennia now. This is why indigenous land rights and land back are of great importance in today's times. 
because for so long, indigenous peoples all over this world continue to experience disruption of their ways of living, displacement from their homelands, and violence within their communities. When we no longer have access or control to the biggest factor in our lives, then what does that say of the current system that deems itself a provider of freedom for all people under its dominion? This is not freedom. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's oppression and erasure of indigenous peoples and our ways of living. Remembering and honoring our inherent connection to the land can begin the process of decolonizing our perception of land as more than just a resource to exploit for capital gain. By decolonizing our perception of land, we can find ourselves back on the path toward indigenous sovereignty from which we've been led astray. The acknowledgement and reminding of the interconnected relationship between indigenous people and their culture to the land is only the beginning. And because I'm naturally a hopeful person, which I suspect is a condition we've become accustomed to because of colonial oppression, I believe we can see this reclamation work come to fruition. We need to raise our collective voices so we can ensure that we will be heard and respected by entities wielding their control over us. This is why I say yes to Indigenous land rights. This is why I say yes to land back. Once again, Undunkalina Sijus Masi to Kalani and Deep Pacific for allowing me to enter this space and share my voice. Biba Tata Marianas, Biba Tata Pacifica, Zambiba Paratoru Iman Indigenous Tata Siha. Wow. That was beautiful and educational. That was a great positive overview of the subject of land back and why it is so important for us CNMI Chamorros to support our Tselus in Guahan in this struggle. Mas mentions that the political system of Guam displaces and disenfranchises the people of Guam by forcing them to choose between who they are and who they can become by embracing capitalism and so-called westernization. This changes the cultural dynamic, and often this change is beyond their control. Or not often, it is beyond their control. In case you're wondering why I always give an acknowledgement of thanks to this island of Guahan at the beginning of every episode, it is because of this. I and Tomas and many other Chamorros from the CNMI living on Guahan have privilege in this space but it is lopsided. Many of us, but not all, have lands back home passed down to us that have been in our families for generations. My parents right now are living on my dad's family land. My mom has land for me back home in multiple places, even multiple islands. By living on Guahan, and for anyone else living on Guahan, you contribute to the displacement of the people of Guahan by buying land here or by paying someone else who bought this land if that person is not Chamorro. This contributes because that land belongs to the Chamorro people, which I am a Chamorro person, but this situation we are in as Chamorros from the CNMI is unique in so many ways, which I'll go into later when we finally get that podcasting equipment in to do our bonus episode on Article 12. Article 12 is a part of the CNMI's covenant, which established the CNMI as a commonwealth originally. Just know that I know I am indigenous to this land, but politically, because Guam Chamorros cannot own land where I am from, I consider myself a settler here, only in the political sense, and only because I have that respect for the Chamorros of Guam who have been disenfranchised beyond belief by their relationship to the U.S., 
And it's something also that you cannot understand unless you're from the CNMI and have been living on Guam and kind of understand how Chamorro families here live in comparison to there, as well as the history that is hidden from plain view by the military. So the nuance there within Tomas' piece is so, so layered. The last thing I'll draw your attention to is what Moss said when they said, Why must the indigenous people of this land unwillingly give up who they are to participate in a system that does not value their knowledge, practices, and cultures? Why indeed? Thank you once again, Moss, one of my wonderful associate producers, for your incredible contribution to this topic. I appreciate you. That was beautiful. All right. We have made it through the end of those awesome perspectives on land back and thinking about the ways we can decolonize our land and our relationship to her. What follows next is paraphrased from that website I have linked in the show notes. I paraphrased it to fit our situation in the Pacific. What is needed next is for us to work on our relationship and reaction to giving land back. The best way to put this is that with every step Indigenous peoples take forward, we are pushed two steps back. The amount of times we have all seen non-Indigenous people react in panic, anger, guilt, or straight-up ignorance around this topic is amazing. Who can blame these folks, though? In school, we are all taught a one-sided and misleading version of our histories, where Indigenous people are seen as victims, as thieves, as lazy and dishonest, drunks or drug addicts, which is not true. When buying property, you're made to believe that the land you own wasn't acquired through violence, but only through exchange. (laughs) Funny. At every point possible, your existence has been shaped to unknowingly push against indigenous land reclamation efforts. Most are taught to avoid and neglect conversations about colonialism and its negative impacts, to be possessive of land and to be ignorant towards indigenous folks. This is intentional. What can we do about land back? How can we contribute to this discussion in the places where we live today? A cool thing I've seen going around recently that can not be cool in some instances is that people are researching the original indigenous people whose lands they are on. That is good. They are giving land acknowledgements before they present any works which they derive from that land, which is good. I saw a YouTube video disparaging these land acknowledgements and the first reason she gave was at the end of the day that made those people feel better about themselves, that they gave the land acknowledgements with a smug look on their faces and then went on with their lives feeling self-righteous and didn't need to do anything else. That is a great point made and that is not enough. That should be the beginning of the least amount you can do. Here's a great quote by Chelsea Vowell. The fact of indigenous presence should force non-indigenous people to confront their own place on these lands. Be vocal about it. Give land acknowledgements whenever you present anything formally that was extracted from the land. Play a role in the movements in your local areas. Join indigenous networks as a real ally, as someone who can come when called Speak up for others and use your privilege, if you have it, in a way that uplifts the indigenous voices of the place you occupy. For every step we take forward, we are shoved two steps back. Kind of like when we took two steps forward with Obama and then backpedaled into the dark ages. Remember, though, that this is not a podcast for changing the world quick and easy. 
There are no easy answers or shortcuts to take. The work of systemic change requires experimentation and jumping into deep waters. But we can learn from others about how best to jump. I know I speak on this topic with such incredible privilege, so it is important to repeat that some of us Pacifica are losing or will lose our land to climate change. It's important to keep in mind that in Hawaii, Micronesians and Kofa migrants are discriminated against on all sides by a system that refuses to recognize what they earned for their land and relationship with the U.S. Micronesian people and all other current and future climate refugees have been disenfranchised in their own lands by imperial powers such as the U.S. and they may lose the ability to keep their connection to a land that the ocean will reclaim, accelerated by global warming which was caused in large part by capitalism. In Aotearoa, Maori are also discriminated against in the healthcare system and in housing and in so many other ways. So please have some empathy and compassion because there is already too little of that in this world. Every moment we spend fighting each other is a moment distracted from the real task at hand. What can we do about Landback? How can we contribute to this discussion in the places where we live today? I honestly love hearing our listeners tag us or talk about decolonization. It's a beautiful conversation to have with someone, to be honest. It's a great starter because it really shows when someone has put in the work to decolonize and when someone hasn't. Like, seriously, it's so obvious. It's, it's like, it's crazy. It's almost like the system set it up to be that way. If you know of a way in your place, if you know of an Indigenous-led organization to support or join, please let us know and we will boost it. We would love to hear from you on Indigenous Peoples Day, so tweet us or comment on Instagram or Twitter at Deep Pacific Pod on both platforms to share your views, any thoughts you may have and what you thought of the episode or which piece was your favorite. And now we are finished here, so let's take that last break before getting into our scientific paper. All right, so scientific paper time, my favorite. So the paper that we are going to be summarizing today is called Environmentally Induced Parental or Developmental Conditioning Influences Coral Offspring Ecological Performance. I know, sounds scary, but I swear it's easier than it sounds. We will get through this title together. Let's say it again, but in a better way, shall we? One, environmentally induced, so caused by the environment or started by the environment. Two, parental or developmental conditioning, so either conditioned by the parents or by the development of the offspring. Three, influences coral offspring ecological performance, which is to say that this article will tell us about coral babies and how either their parents or their genes needed them to survive, so it influenced how well the babies can survive and thrive, and that is caused by their environment, or started by their environment. So environment plus parents or genes equals survive and thrive. Boom. So their ability to survive and thrive is caused or induced by the environment they are born in. Whew. We made it through that forest of thought. Thanks for sticking with me. I appreciate the trust. This paper was published in August of 2020, so this is hot off the press. 
and it is authored by a few people, one of whom is my dear friend, so let me tell you about them. The first author is Dr. Holly Putnam. Dr. Putnam graduated with a PhD in zoology from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, yay, in 2012, and is an assistant professor at the University of Rhode Island, currently doing really great work. I looked through her lab website and I loved what I saw. The second author is Dr. Raphael Ritson-Williams, a PhD graduate of the University of Hawaii at Manoa in 2017. Nice. Raphael also earned his master's degree from the University of Guam in 2002, which is so important. Forming these networks. Shout out to Raphael. He is currently doing research at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology alongside another author from this paper, Jennifer Davidson, who I will mention in another moment because our third author is Miss Jolly Ann Cruz, a Chamorro Guinean Saipan like myself. I am so proud of her for this. And when I saw this paper and read it, I was incredibly glad to see her included in the authorship. Jolly currently works for the environmental nonprofit Mariana Islands Nature Alliance, or MINA, as it is affectionately called on the island of Saipan in the Marianas. Great job you're doing there, Jolly. This was an awesome first paper to have under your belt. Woo! Love that girl. Another author of the paper is the distinguished former director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and the first woman to be president of the International Society for Reef Studies, Dr. Ruth Gates. She had studied biology at Newcastle University and completed a PhD at Newcastle University in 1989. Dr. Gates' research was dedicated to understanding coral reef ecosystems, specifically coral algal symbiosis and the capacity for corals to acclimatize under future climate change conditions. Dr. Gates is the most accredited with looking at coral biology and human-assisted coral evolution known as supercorals, as seen in the documentary Chasing Coral on Netflix. She passed away in October 25th, 2018. So it will be only two years. Rest in peace, Dr. Gates. I would have loved to have met you. The last but not least author is Miss Jennifer Davidson, as I mentioned earlier, who graduated with her MS in marine biology from Northeastern University in 2014 and currently is a marine lab supervisor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. So shout out to Jennifer because that is not an easy thing to do, you know. Now let's dive further into the paper. So what's the significance of this paper? Its significance is that it is original research because not many other people have been consistently studying this. Here's something from the abstract that tells you. Maintaining coral reefs into the future requires not only the survival of adult corals, but also the influx of recruits to promote genetic diversity and retain cover following adult mortality. So let's break that down a little bit more. It is no surprise to any of you listeners that we are losing them, our reefs, the babies of our ocean who grew up to become some of our islands, atolls, which are formed from reefs that once surrounded an active volcano, for example, for example, the Marshall Islands, are formed from coral reefs. Not only are coral reefs vital parts of the ocean, contributing so much to the biodiversity and a vital source of food, they are also culturally important. So maintaining that genetic diversity so that we can have healthy coral reefs is really important, especially following bleaching events when the adults don't make it. 
This study is important because it introduces a novel or new approach to test coral parental conditioning to ocean acidification due to global warming. It also tracked coral larvae for six months after being released to understand the parental or developmental impacts on how well the coral babies survived and thrived. That's crazy! Tracking coral larvae, I mean. The new frontier. So this study ran an experiment by exposing expecting coral parents to certain conditions to see if the offspring would be primed to survive better. And it found that the adults conditioning them may actually serve as a form of environmental priming that has stimulatory effects on the babies. Another cool aspect of the study is that they tested how long the plasticity is maintained after the coral babies finally chose a place to settle and call home until the juvenile stage, which is badass. Because I am a firm supporter of saving our reefs, this is a great study that looks into yet another aspect of our dear ocean that is poorly understood, the planular larva stage of corals and the phenotypic plasticity, or how well the coral babies were prepared to survive and thrive due to the effects of intergenerational trauma, uh, uh, intergenerational stress of corals as well. So... It looked into when the corals were larvae and really small, and then it also looked into how well they were prepared to survive from their intergenerational stresses. This makes me incredibly happy to see because if this mechanism is found to positively acclimate coral babies of the future to global warming, it could be yet another tool to help us better predict how our reefs will respond to climate change. But... As a disclaimer, there have been other studies the paper mentioned done on other species which did not positively acclimate those coral babies. Basically, this means that while this study pointed out that this may be a positive, more studies need to be done with other coral species to draw a stronger conclusion. So who does this study affect in the Pacific and how? Well, it affects all of us in the Pacific because one, um, hello, we live here. And two, our islands come from the ocean and some from reefs. And three, we as a Pacific people are tied to our cultures. Our cultures are tied to the land. And since the land comes from the sea, it follows that we are also tied to the sea and to our reefs culturally, economically, spiritually, and physically. We depend on our reefs for so much which is why it's so important to keep them alive and healthy. And it's so important to keep global warming down as much as possible. Some of our cultures, like Nainoa mentioned earlier in the episode, and like I mentioned in the other episode on decolonization, already had ways of kapu, or in that paper I referred to it as taboo, a method of managing the reefs by managing the fishing seasons to maintain it. Since colonization and the increased westernization and development of many of the Pacific islands, as well as global warming, climate change, overfishing due to a cash economy and mismanaged enforcement, environmental policy that disregards and even bans our indigenous fishing practices, causing a cascade of effects that influence our ocean negatively, among a host of other reasons, we are losing our precious coral reefs. Non-point source pollution also. Remember the scientific paper I went over from episode 4 on decolonization? This is where it ties in. So, in my opinion, uh, this must have been an incredibly difficult study, precisely due to the difficulty in studying larvae that drift across the ocean on currents for who knows how far. Scientists struggle with finding exactly when corals spawn because 
just like adults, corals never kiss and tell. So it's usually pretty difficult to know with certainty how old the larva really is. Also, have you seen coral planular larvae? They are tiny. Look it up on YouTube and be amazed. They float on currents. They mix with all kinds of other larvae from other marine invertebrates. And they get eaten and die and all that jazz from outside influences as well. So of course, these are incredibly difficult to study because of that reason. And uh, here is also a good quote from the study. The lack of data on these life stage linkages in corals is now particularly critical in light of severe ecosystem declines and the growing acknowledgement that adaptive responses are necessary for persistence under rapid climate change. No kidding. Also, the actual data from this study was collected from 2014. 2014, and this is still new. Kudos to the team, by the way. That is persistence. I love that this study attempted it because someone had to do it, right? But also, really, it's a great thing when new approaches to reef resiliency predictions are being found. It's a reminder that we still have so much to learn. Because we are in the process of our oceans becoming more acidic at an accelerated pace, how everything responds to it is still not well known. So it's like studying how groups of people are affected by the wildfires as they burn. Or how countries respond to coronavirus while we're in a pandemic. Difficult to do because we are still in this scenario and so also harder to track, isolate, and predict. Future thoughts. The paper points out that to date, only three studies, three have been done on the reef-building coral babies' response to ocean acidification and temperature and feeding. So, the longer-term effects of this plasticity are unknown. Basically, we need more people to study the intergenerational stress of corals to look for ways we can try to save them by having better predictions. Like it said earlier, The lack of data on these life stage linkages in corals is particularly critical in light of severe ecosystem declines and the growing acknowledgement that adaptive responses are necessary for persistence under rapid climate change. So in the future, we would really need these studies to get ramped up. Hopefully, this becomes my field. (laughs) And that is everything for that scientific paper. So I just wanted to follow up with you my deep pacifica a final announcement our last episode on our podcast values we mentioned that our next episode will be on family and that is still one that's in the mix it's coming up next i swear i also have to mention that we will be going on a break in mid-november for the holidays to allow myself the deep pacific council members as well as the members of our collective and contributors some time for family and to ease the stress of the holidays because, as you know, we Pacific Islanders go big on our religions. Plus, let us not forget that we're actually not getting paid to produce this podcast. Like, if anything, it's coming out of our personal time. So please, I hope you bear with us because we have some really exciting things planned for next season. I'll go into more detail on this in the near future, I swear. Also, This break does not include bonus episodes, so if anything comes up, we will definitely still be around with eyes and ears on the lookout as usual. But that is finally it, I swear. You have reached the very end of the episode. Woohoo! Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts if you haven't already. And rate us on Apple Podcasts too, because we love hearing from you. 
I have more stickers being made for those who have rated us before because we did run out. And as soon as those are made, I will send them out to those listeners who rated us before. Thank you for listening and Sainama Asi. Please stay safe. Please keep your head up. Please decolonize.